This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. I've got so many anecdotes and stories like this of how deaf people are being excluded from cultural events, how much harder they, we, I have had to work to access culture. I think I am trying to write into those disconnections and create new bridges. Hello, I'm Emily Berry, the editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'll be talking to Raymond Antrobus. Ray was recently selected as the winner of the magazine's Jeffrey Dermer Prize for 2017 for his poem Sound Machine. The Dermer is an annual prize for the best poem published in the Poetry Review by a poet who didn't, at the time of publication, have a full collection out. The judge for 2017 was Ocean Vong. Ray's winning poem is republished in the summer issue of the magazine. It was originally in the spring 2017 issue, alongside a new poem after reading Deaf School by the Mississippi River. Raymond Antrobus is a British Jamaican poet, performer and educator. He was born in Hackney and is one of the world's first recipients of an MA in spoken word education from Goldsmiths University of London. He's been poet in residence in both hearing and deaf schools in and around London. He's a fellow of the Complete Works 3 and in 2017 was awarded one of three inaugural Jerwood Compton Poetry Fellowships. His pamphlet, To Sweet and Bitter, was published by Outspoken Press in 2017 and his first full collection, The Perseverance, is forthcoming from Penned in the Margins in October. Welcome, Ray. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It would be great if we could start with you reading after reading Deaf School. Sure. After reading Deaf School by the Mississippi River. No one wise calls the river unaware or simple pools. No one wise says it lacks a dimension. No one wise says its body is removed from the vibration of air. The river is a quiet breathtaker, gargling mud. Ted is alert and simple. Ted lacked a subtle, waving aura of sound and responses to sound. Ted lived through his eyes, but I the colossal currents from the bridge, I river boats ghosting a geography of fog. Mississippi means big river, named by French colonizers. The natives laughed at their arrogant maps, conquering wind and marking mist. The mouth of the river laughs. A man in a wetsuit emerges, pulls misty goggles over his head. Couldn't see a thing. He breathes heavily. My face was in darkness. No one heard him. The river drowned him out. Yeah, it's such a striking poem. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit maybe about how the poem came into being. I know in the full version that will be in your book, it's accompanied by the original Ted Hughes poem that you're responding to, which you've struck through. Two things came together to write this poem. One of them was being in New Orleans. I was there for a month while I was finishing the writing of the manuscript. My family out there, my partners from there. And every day I was waking up next to the Mississippi River and I'd brought along books by deaf poets, deaf writers, and I came across this anthology, the last 200 years of people writing about deafness. And Ted Hughes was in there. He'd written a poem called Deaf School, which 
when I read, I had such a visceral feeling. <laughs> I didn't know how to make that anger, that humiliation even poetic. And so I thought a lot about Ted Hughes because I do like Ted Hughes. I've read a lot of his work. I like a lot of Ted Hughes' poems and books. But I thought, well, Ted Hughes is the master of metaphor and extended metaphor. So I need something to go in and meet him at his own level. Every day when I was in New Orleans, I was having so many conversations about the river, about the Mississippi River and people's relationship with it. And I thought kind of infused by the energy of being by this river, I would personify the Mississippi River to speak back to Ted Hughes in this instance, you know. I was thinking it might actually be helpful for listeners to say just briefly a little bit about what Ted Hughes's poem is like. You reference some lines of it in your response. Exactly, yeah. I mean, the opening line of Ted Hughes's poem is, the deaf children were monkey nimble, fish tremulous and sudden. And I think there's a certain overconfidence about that, about going in and thinking it's okay to write about children and comparing them to monkeys. Then the next line is, their faces were alert and sudden like faces of little animals. You know, so ultimately, Ted Hughes, this great poet, I mean... It sort of shows a surprising lack of imagination in a way. He just projects onto these children this idea of simplicity and limitation, which I think your poem really beautifully blows apart. He says at one point, something about the children living through their eyes I think their unused faces were simple lenses of watchfulness simple pools of earnest watchfulness yeah and even something as loaded as they lacked a dimension it's such a way to use your power as a poet to frame or to in a way assault people you don't understand and I think there are so many things in literature in our canon in our story in our history of language that I think should be refought or challenged that's something that happens throughout your book in different ways I was really interested in how you picked out quite a lot of significant figures from history or from literature deaf characters or living real people Mm. stories that I didn't know about I Mm. realized I'm very ignorant about this subject and I found reading the book as well as being very moving sort of very educational I mean maybe being moved is always to be educated in some way but I sort of wondered how that approach arose if you started to think oh this is a way in which I want to develop my work responding Mm. to these different yeah because I think growing up I felt hugely misunderstood I felt like everyone thought I was stupid because I couldn't hear. I felt like I felt like it was really important for me to develop my own language to explain myself. And that's also to do with being mixed race as much as it is to do with my deafness, as much as it is to do with going to a deaf school, which is also part of a hearing school, as much as that is to do with my relationship with sign language and spoken language, because there's shame under all of that. What I realise is that shame is more to do with my overconsciousness of how people perceive me, and that 
been more important to me than how I perceive myself. And it's taken me a long time, a lot of growing up and thinking and writing to get to the point where I feel confident enough to write a poem like After Reading Death School by the Mississippi River to bring in poets like Ted Hughes or great figures like Charles Dickens to the forefront of my own work, put my name next to theirs in a way. And it's funny, like the perseverance writing a book, this idea that you kind of write a book and then you change as a person. I almost feel like, I already feel like a new person, like the person who wrote The Perseverance isn't quite the person who's sitting here. I feel like a lot of this work is me writing through a personal trauma and coming to different conclusions that I can then go on to apply to new bodies of work. The thing that writing this poem taught me is how important cinema is in my writing in my way of thinking and I now have a thing where I do think of my work as scenes I often think about okay here's the camera what is being panned what is being seen and that's how I kind of reached a conclusion of a man emerges from a river you know when you're looking for your way out of a poem I was definitely thinking about cinema and there were so many stories I heard in New Orleans about strange people or strange things emerging from the water yeah. you know <laughs> over the last 300 years of the history of New Orleans as a, as a city as we know it you yeah know, really fascinating place well it's a kind of a triumphant thing but then there's a kind of weird sci-fi vibe to it there's this, like <laughs> this unknown creature coming out of the river what's going to happen but maybe there's something about a reclaiming I think you're right in a reclaiming and a reframing where this figure becomes the perhaps misunderstood but becomes the target of strangeness, otherworldliness, mm. something that is only there to serve the purpose of mystery and is there as a kind of way for me, the poet, to use as a, I don't want to say a trope. Well, I suppose that's what, in Ted Hughes's poem, the mystery is something that he can't understand, right. what he can't understand about the children. Whereas in your poem, it's like, this is the amazing positive thing. So you're mm. kind of like spinning it round. I really like the, um, the use of the word I. Ted lived through his eyes, but mm. I, the colossal currents from the bridge, mm. I, riverboats, ghosting a geography of fog. And so it's about the visual sense, but then I is also a homonym for I, the first person mm. Mm. pronoun. Then that's a kind of sound element. But then you're using the noun I almost as a verb mm. or it's still a noun, but it's in a kind of unusual position. So there's this kind of all this weird stuff going on that's really interesting and just seems to like make what in Ted Hughes's poem is presented as something very simple, just shows how kind of much more rich and complex it is. Oh, absolutely. And that decision came out of understanding deaf people as people of the eye, people who are visual listeners and how much is in the way of owning that in poetry on the page but also as experience as a lit reader as well as someone who may speak sign language. I can't lie that there was so much 
uncertainty and fear and doubt <laughs> about writing this, but I'm glad I did. I think it helped because I'm not from New Orleans. You know, I'm writing about the Mississippi River and I'm writing in a space where people are very attached in New Orleans and around the Gulf Coast to their relationship with the river, you know, so in some ways I'm also maybe created a kind of appropriation, but I don't know, that's down to readers, you, you know? Yeah, I think that's always a kind of a, an area that we have to think about a lot and often there isn't a really clear answer. I mean, I was also going to ask about, I noticed that you have a lot of dramatic monologues in the book. One I really love, Aunt Beryl meets Castro, oh, yeah. which was recently in modern poetry and translation you've got one that's I think it's a translation from a conversation in British sign language and then others with figures from deaf history such as Laura Bridgman and Helen Keller and I guess those are areas in which there are potential pitfalls it didn't seem to me that you'd fallen into any of them but I suppose I wondered what attracted you to that kind of form and I'm also really interested in the translation from sign language and how that works. Going back to what you were saying about deaf people often being very visual. I love the ending of that poem where the speaker, they say, how you write me when I am visual, how will someone reading this see my feeling? Which I thought was really amazing intersection of the written and the spoken and the visual and just how it all merges or doesn't merge and obviously not being a sign language speaker I don't know what the process would be from sort of witnessing it to transcribing it I mean was this a literal conversation or mm. yeah this is a literal for the most part it's a literal conversation I mean speaking to a friend who's a deaf art teacher and her story her history is so interesting and it, there were quite a few stories that I got from people which didn't end up in the book but the one thing that everyone I spoke with had in common was they were all confused as to why someone should write about them. They were all like asked that question. Why are you writing about me? I'm not interesting. Wow. Every single one that broke my heart. It just broke my heart. I cannot wait to give this book to these people that I've written about for them to see how their stories are important, how their stories are interesting to other people. I was reading an article you wrote for the British Council, I think yeah. about Kingston Book Festival, and you mentioned the statistics for illiteracy yeah. in the deaf community, yeah. which were incredibly shocking to yeah. me. I think it was 70% in the UK and yeah. 95 in yeah. Jamaica, was it? It's 95 in Jamaica. I mean, that's that's complicated as well, because there's a term for it, which is functionally literate which means you you may not be able to read and write in standard english but you can get by in sign language but if less than 10 percent of the population speak your language i don't know how functional yes yeah, that is how much exactly you can communicate this is a, a global phenomena i was in ukraine earlier this year that was fascinating there's a really strong visible deaf community in ukraine and I did this reading at this gallery and 50 deaf Ukrainians showed up, all sat right at the front. They had a Ukrainian sign language interpreter. And just before we began, she tapped me. She said, they're here for you. Then the organizer of the festival had said, 
we've never had this before. We've never had a Ukrainian sign language translator come in for our festival and we've never had 50 people show up like this wow. for our poetry event particularly. I've got so many anecdotes and stories like this of how deaf people are being excluded from cultural events, how much harder they, we, I have had to work to access culture. I think I am trying to write into those disconnections and create new bridges. And I think one thing that I want to do with the Perseverance is ensure that every reading I do has BSL interpreters. I never want to hear again that someone couldn't access my work or poetry because of, again, a miscommunication, a misconception. I was going to ask you, because I know you do a lot of teaching, mm -hmm. you've taught in deaf schools and in hearing schools, mm. about how that interacts with your work. I noticed in the, your book you have a very sort of detailed notes section in which you mm. mention often sources and inspirations for individual poems and often you say something like this poem would not exist without mm. such and such a poem mm. or such and such a poet which I just thought was really lovely kind of way of paying homage to like a lineage and to influences mm. which obviously all poems and poets have but not all poets are so sort of upfront about acknowledging that so I suppose thinking about it from the other way around like do you feel that your kind of practice as a teacher and as a writer are very much interconnected and how do they sort of play off each other? That's a really good question. I do. I absolutely do. Because the more reading I do about poetry and people who've written things like how to write poetry. I mean, Ted Hughes has his how to write a poem book, you know, they're all teachers. Many poets are also teachers. And there's a, even a epigraph, a poet I quote in the book, Lydia Huntley-Sigjorni, who was a deaf teacher from the 18th century, who said, Where in literature of a deaf scene truly, with deafness just one condition of their lives, acting in concert with deaf and hearing people, not living as isolates. And she wrote this after she spent a year working as a teacher in a deaf school. She's not deaf herself. She's just spending a lot of time with deaf young people. Mm. And she's writing these poems about them, about her students. She's writing about how they communicate. And, you know, this is in 1814. This is one of the first established deaf schools in America with lots of English teachers in there, interestingly enough. So there is such a strong connection, I think, between the teacher and the poet and the poet-teacher and I think with in the back of the book, I find that acknowledgement so important. I very much do see my work in conversation with many that have gone before me, teachers and poets. You know, at the front of the book as well, I acknowledge my speech therapist, my sound therapist. I couldn't be here doing this without all the support I got. In some ways, I see this book as a kind of homage to the NHS. I've visited deaf schools in Jamaica and in America, places where there is no NHS, places where many people that are born deaf aren't given access to the support that I had. I had 10 years of speech therapy, hearing therapy, in-class support. I learned sign language so much. Mm. It broke my heart every time I saw someone not getting that support, just solely out of circumstance, just solely because of 
a system that's failing them. I wondered about what your kind of journey into writing and performing was, because I, I think you mentioned when you were reading it, the Poetry Review launch, that you came to literacy yourself quite late. Yeah. And, you know, at what point did you sort of get into writing and performing your work? I think you mentioned your parents were both quite formative in introducing you to poetry. Yeah, I have to really acknowledge my parents. I'm really lucky to have had two parents who are readers. My, my dad passed away, so but they were both readers. They both had books on their bookshelf, so I had a presence of literature my whole life. They were both very interested in the world and very curious and encouraged me too to be curious. But they were also hearing so when they found out that I was deaf they didn't no one had told them what the needs of a deaf young person are mm. I think mainly my mum really kind of figured it out managed to get these written statements managed to go to council meetings and ask all these questions and found out what was available and made that work for me I was always writing from when I was young, from when I was a kid, but I couldn't spell, I couldn't write in a straight line, all this kind of stuff. I was a 12-year-old with a reading and writing age of a six-year-old. The teachers that I had seemed to be very confused. Like I was reading some of my reports from school, they'd say things like, oh, Raymond seems to have a, a keen interest in English, in reading and writing, but he doesn't seem to be able to do it, <laughs> you know. But my mum, again, and my dad, I don't feel like they ever sh shame me or discourage me from pursuing, picking up a book and, and trying. But in terms of the writing and performing, I'd say that when I was 18, I went to the States. I was in a place called Ohio and I was working with deaf young people. It was my first time out in the States and also meeting non-British deaf people and deaf young people and also coders stands for a child of deaf adults mm -hmm. and just being amazed and blown away by the confidence that so many of these young people had the way that they looked at my hearing aids and said oh wow cool what kind of hearing aids are they oh cool my dad's got these kind of hearing aids it was the first time in my life I'd had a positive interaction a positive kind of first impression from my deafness from, from the presence of my hearing aids is so important and so interesting to me that that happened. And in that same week, a friend I'd made had taken me to a bar and they had this talent contest or something. And there were people getting up reading poems between these open mic bands. And I remember looking at them and listening and thinking, oh, this is what I do. You know, I have this notebook and I write poems which I didn't know were poems until someone else had said hey these are poems yeah like, oh yeah you're right they are poems <laughs> I guess and I think that clicked something with me that that's what I want to do that that's part of who I am which is how I'm expressing myself anyway so when I came back to London I started going to poetry nights like poetry unplugged on the Tuesday there was a, a slam night called Farago so I had a way into I suppose, a poetry scene, a poetry community from a young age. You know, I was 18, 19. When I was 21, I'd won a slam. And a bit later on, I then was being invited to go to places like Switzerland and Germany and Chicago. Where I'd meet more members of a poetry community and a lot of teachers as well. So I started 
being invited into classrooms in different parts of the world as well yeah. that was really fascinating so all of these kind of experiences I suppose accumulated to me sitting here with you right now <laughs> having written a book called The Perseverance and still feeling very proud and confused <laughs> <laughs> it's a good combination of feelings <laughs> Also in the same article I mentioned that I'd read that you'd written about Kingston Book Festival, you'd mm. mentioned a question you'd had from an 11-year-old boy, which was, is it emotional to write a book? Which I just love the directness of that. You have a number of poems in the book exploring your relation with your father and the sort mm. of, I guess, they're kind of elegies. And the poem which won the Derma Prize, Sound mm. Machine, is one of those. Maybe not something you want to talk about, but I just wondered what your experience was of writing those and if you felt like your relationship to the experience of losing your dad to him even had sort of changed as a result of writing them hmm it's a it's a good question and interesting coming from you as someone who's also explored that I can't remember if that line made it in in the end but I had a line that said grief doesn't go it changes shape mm, yeah I remember reading that and I feel I feel like with every poem I write I'm still as grief stricken about my dad but there's always something I'm still learning about him and about my relationship to him and also how that's connected to my relationship to Jamaica and how in so many ways I realized that I was writing about him because I was looking for him I was looking for him in the world. And that seems to be an ongoing thing. I was, when I first submitted this manuscript, I was very afraid of those poems because I thought that they would be just, oh, another poet loses a parent, you know? Mm. Oh, you know, why is this important? Why is this interesting? So it, again, funnily enough, I didn't know that if they were going to be public because I do write a lot that's just for me. Um, I guess that's the irony is that's why they are important because everybody does lose a parent eventually yeah. everyone can relate at some point yeah I, I think so I think so I mean what they also encourage me to do is get therapy you know <laughs> because what I wanted to ensure was that I wasn't turning to poetry to resolve my pain my mm. grief I knew that I would be in trouble if I had that kind of relationship with poetry. Why do you think that would? Because I've seen, I mean, there's so many examples of people who relied on pain and trauma. Oh, okay. So you kind of want to keep on generating it in I, order to produce more work or something. I want to be functional. Yeah. It's more important to me <laughs> to be healthy, especially as a teacher. You know, I can't be giving myself away to people I care about if I'm hurt <laughs> if I'm not caring for myself yeah, yeah you know actually teaching has really taught me a lot about self-care <laughs> how to manage my responsibilities you know I'm just not interested in any kind of overly romanticized idea of poetry and pain and death mm. I'm not here to create that so that it can be like applauded there's something really gross about that which I really hope <laughs> yeah 
No, but, I think, yeah, I know what you mean. It becomes, you feel like you're sort of cannibalizing yourself or something. Yeah. So I do feel like all these poems that I wrote about my dad, I really had something to work through. I don't feel like any of them were like some kind of exercise in pain, some kind of like, where's the meat? How can you create a really dramatic moment? You know, I'm, that's not the kind of poet I am or I'm the kind of person I'm interested in being. So yeah, I would say that those poems have a lot of value to me and my journey and how I grew and how I found a way to reconnect with my dad after he passed away. And I do tend to get messages like with To Sweet and Bitter, the pamphlet. I got quite a lot of messages from people, mainly in America, interestingly enough, from young people who've lost a parent. And every one of those messages was really moving and really made me feel like if it's managing to talk to people beyond myself, I think it has a place in a book, you know? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I think I'll just ask you to finish up with reading Sound Machine. Cool. And then the uh, credits will roll. <laughs> <laughs> Sound Machine. My mirth can laugh and talk, but cannot sing. My grief finds harmonies in everything. James Thompson. And what comes out if it isn't the wires? Dad welds to his homemade sound system which I accidentally knock loose while he is recording talk over dubs, killing the bass, flattening the mood and his muses, making dad blow his fuses and beat me. But it wasn't my fault. The things he made could be undone so easily and we would keep losing connection. But praise my dad's mechanical hands. Even though he couldn't fix my deafness, I still channel him. My sound system plays on Father's Day in Manor Park Cemetery where I find his grave and for the first time see his middle name, Osbert, derived from Old English meaning God and Bright, which may have been a way to bleach him, darkest of his five brothers, the only one sent away from the country to live uptown with his light-skinned aunt. She protected him from police who didn't believe he belonged unless they heard his English, which was smooth as some uptown roads. His aunt loved him and taught him to recite Wordsworth and Coleridge, rhythms that wouldn't save him. He would become Rasta and never tell a soul about the name that undid his blackness. It is his grave that tells me the name, his black body, even in death, could not move. Or mute. Thank you very much, Ray. You can read those poems in the summer issue of the Poetry Review 2018, and you can also read them in Ray's book, which will be published in October. The Perseverance coming out with Penned in the Margins. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.